Take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Whenever we have communion, it is our goal, our practice to focus entirely on communion in one aspect or another, which is not hard to do when walking through the scriptures because there are so many passages that reference what our Savior has accomplished for us and are worthy of our remembrance and what was involved in purchasing our redemption. So our study tonight is largely going to be in Hebrews, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, and snippets, as it were, from those various passages to reflect over, again, what Christ has accomplished in providing our salvation. So uh, this evening, as we observe communion, as we walk through these passages and think about what the Lord has done for us, it's uh, our effort in this to approach communion in a worthy fashion. And that would be to give it the honor and respect uh, due this memory, this remembrance, this opportunity to reflect over what our Savior's accomplished and what it means for us. The gamut of emotion is evolved, involved in this. Sometimes there can be conviction. Conviction over sin and our broken fellowship and the desire to be right with God. Communion has often been said, one of those times where most often God's people are brought back to a place of being in fellowship with their Savior, knowing that God has ordained this remembrance, as it were, to remember the new covenant that God has made, remember the testament of our promises or promises God has made to us in salvation, what it means to be in fellowship with him, what it means to have a relationship with him. It's a time of sobriety when we think of our Savior's suffering. Not only his shed blood, of course, yes, his shed blood, but all that was involved in him going to the cross. All the doctrine underlying the importance of the need that we had in Jesus going to the cross for us. We were just studying in the members class uh, before we came here, the fall of man. Reflecting over Revelation chapter 20, how that there are books that are open. There are books that record our deeds. And then there's another book that is the book of life. In that moment of studying that in our class together, we referenced uh, a Negro spiritual that I remember as a child. And it, it said something along these lines. The main line of the so song went, my God am writing all the time. And the idea of that is that the Lord knows all of our sin. He knows every last thing we've ever done. If the Lord was to open the book that recorded all of our deeds, would God be just in condemning us? I referenced, uh, and again, forgive me for those that were in the class, I referenced it uh, this last week. I happened to be in close proximity to a, a young lady that I just happened to be walking by. When I say young, I'm saying somewhere between that six and eight years of age. And I heard her say, uh, well, blank, and she, and she said, uh, the Lord's name. And she, it was a shock to me, here's such a young one, you know, take the name of the Lord in vain and to blaspheme his name. And yet when we think about our sin, if a book was to be open to 
show all of our sin, what kind of indictment would there be? I took a moment in the class to say, you know, there are those in Christianity that see themselves as better than the lost. And we need to remember the only difference between the saved and the lost is the saving grace of Christ. Of which none of us are worthy, none of us are deserving, none of us are all that. Matter of fact, the all that that we are would be condemned. But Jesus, in his love towards us, dies on the cross, becoming our propitiation, our atonement, a savior that washes away all of our sin so that our names are written in the book of life. And simply that settles it. You know how you have all these, think about this. You have all these things. Imagine your name, imagine your name and under it every last sin you ever committed. Think about a book like that. And then think about the book of life where all it is is your name. Just your name found written in the book of life. And why is it just your name? Well, it's just your name because you don't deserve it. It's the Lord owning you because you've come to him in faith. Who are we to deserve such a great salvation? So this evening, you cover the gamut of perhaps conviction. If you're not right with God, I hope you want to be. I hope that you want to be in a place tonight where we observe what communion is, fellowship. Where we we are in harmony and close proximity to our Savior. Where we care about Him, love Him, care about what He thinks and what He wants of us. We reflect over this relationship. So this isn't just a time of coming together and observing a service. It's about a relationship with Him. There's Again, the prospect of sobriety. There's also the prospect of joy. As we discuss communion tonight, we have every reason to be joy-filled believers. Especially as you think about what we've discussed already, all those indictments against you that would be against your name have been covered completely by the blood of Christ. All of it. All of it. So there should be rejoicing tonight. And in a while, there's going to be a time where we observe communion. Our pianists will be playing. Most often, they're playing songs that reflect the cross or the atonement. We can give God and glory and praise by thanking him for what he's done for us. But to do so appropriately, let's get into the doctrine of it. And for a moment, look at these passages. Hebrews chapter 11. Excuse me, my mistake there. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. My favorite passages that often reflect the deity of Christ are John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. They ring easy to my ear because they're always first chapters in those books. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. And in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, we read God who at sundry, and sundry means the many and various. God who at sundry many and various times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. What's he saying? He's saying that God had a plan, just like we heard this morning, and God is good at his plan. God does work out his plan effectively and without complication to his divine purpose. God who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days Spoken unto us by his son, Jesus Christ came to earth to reveal the will of the Father, to manifest the Father, to make the mystery of the gospel known. So in verse 2, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, 
whom he hath appointed heir of all things. You might remember Philippians chapter 2, that in all things he might have the preeminence that he is above all. He humbled himself and went to the cross. He's appointed him heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Speaking of Jesus. Speaking of this Jesus. Now think about this. We often run by these doctrinal these doctrinal points, these doctrinal, doctrinal bullets. We run by these and kind of skip over them. But in the context of this passage, there was prophecy of what Jesus would do. There's the doctrine of who he is. And we're about to see in the next verse his glory. But before you see his glory, you're reminded of this very fact that the same Jesus who hung on a cross, the same Jesus who was spat upon, the same Jesus whose beard was plucked from his face, the same Jesus whose, whose head was adorned with a crown of thorns, this same Jesus who is beaten, mocked, this Jesus is the creator of the world. The creator of the world. If it, got, if it causes us a moment of pause to think how great God is and ask the question, why would he come to a cross? It's a healthy concept to let echo in the chambers of your mind, to chew on, to meditate upon, to bring us to an appropriate place of gratitude. Who are we that the king of glory should step into the planet in which he created, take upon him the form of man, be made in fashion as a man, and humble himself to go to the cross. What an amazing God that would do this, this creator of all. What kind of love drives a God who is adored by angels, worshipped by all, to come to a place where people would hate, despise, and reject him? Think of the tenor of the society around us today. What kind of affection is there to our Savior? What kind of affection is there to the gospel of grace? What kind of antagonism is there in the world and violence and up, upheaval in the world that wants to live in rebellion? And yet, our Lord comes into a time, a place in history who at sundry times, but at an appointed time, he comes into history at a time and place putting on human flesh for a very specific purpose. He manifests the will of God. He manifests who God is, and he reveals the mystery of the gospel by fulfilling the prophecy of the gospel that one would come and he would be virgin born and who would be the one who would be the savior of all who would believe. So here you are tonight gathered I look across this room, this assembly, and thank God for each one that is in this place. But who are you and who am I to be able to have such a time as this to worship in fellowship with this great king?
to further understand the magnificence of his grandeur. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, think about these doctrinal points. The glory, you remember the Mount of Transfiguration where he is glorified before his disciples. You think about all that he is putting himself in human form to walk amongst his people, his creation. It says he is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and he upholds all things. Listen to this, by the word of what? So I think it would be appropriate to understand that Jesus, walking on this planet, while he is going under the suffering hand of the path of salvation for us, was upholding all things by the word of his power. Have you ever been tempted to pray those imprecatory prayers? Have you ever been tempted to follow the sons of thunder to pray the wrath of God upon your enemies? And yet here is our Savior walking the planet And all the while he suffers under all of these things, he holds everything by the word of his power. When he had by himself, and I think it's an important phrase read in verse 3, no other, no assistance, and by the way, one of the great reasons that adding anything to the cross of Jesus or the person of Jesus for salvation is such an affront and a despicable doctrine to bring to, uh, to the table for our redemption, who by himself, God didn't need your help, God didn't need your assistance to make you better, we had nothing to offer. No one came in and gave assistance and did this for him, he did it himself. Who by himself, what did he do? The next three words, purged our sins. The purging of our sins is complete. The dealing with our sins and the idea of purge as we understand the language is to cleanse and to take that which is wicked out. Have you ever experienced something that was so messed up there was no hope? There was something so messed up there was no redeeming it? something so infiltrated with bad there was no making it good this would be this would be doing the family barbecue with guests over and you're taking the steaks and the hot dogs off of the grill and as you're walking into the house hot dogs as they do roll off the plate and it lands in the dirt you pick it up and you think ah we got guests they won't mind <laughs> Not quite that way. For many of us, once it hits the dirt, it's done. Once it hits the dirt, it's over. Let me ask you this. How contaminated are we? How contaminated are we with our sin? Jesus, by himself, purges our sin. He deals with our sin appropriately in a holy and just manner and takes it away. The idea of purging again is to grab hold of that 
which does not belong because it's contaminated, and takes it away. He purges your sin. Think about that this night, and don't let the doctrine of the collective that this applies to all be lost on the individual. You, where you sit, and everything that you've ever done as a sinner, as everything you've ever done that's defiant and deplorable in the sight of God, he takes it all. He does this, glory to his name, by himself. It says, noting at the end of the verse, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And what do we signify by this last statement in verse 3? That Jesus' purging, that Jesus' payment, that Jesus' path to reconcile and redeem us was not only God-ordained, but God-completed and God-sanctioned and God-approved. So after the sacrifice, we see that he is at the right hand of the majesty on high. By the way, what is he doing there now as regards to you? What is he doing in regards to you? Has he accomplished something and then forgotten about it and said, hey, I made a path, there's the path, and just simply walked away? Jesus is actively, doctrinally doing something at the right hand of God. What is he doing? Say it. What's he doing? He is our advocate. He is making intercession for us. He is our mediator between God and man. Understand the doctrine of Christ. He is your high priest. You don't need a pastor to stand in place between you and God. You don't need a priest to stand between you and God. You have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus. You see, he didn't just die for you to make a way for you to be saved. He died for you to make a relationship with you. And that relationship, I would say and argue, is more intimate than most of us know. And the more we come to know it, the better fellowship we'll have with him. Hebrews chapter 7, we read regarding the high priests and the nature of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 27. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 27. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first of his own sins and then for the people's. Why would a priest have to do that? Because the priest was a sinner too. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Nobody else had to step in. We call this the sufficiency of Christ. That Christ is not only all, but Christ is enough. So he does what no priest can do. And he does it on your behalf as one who loves you and is in relationship with you. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. Speaking of the nature of the high priest, Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, our last passage before we go to 1 Corinthians 11. But Christ being, in verse 11, 
Hebrews 9, 11, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, understanding when we read Christ, we're reading the Messiah. How much more shall the blood of this Messiah, of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, and what was that offering like? Without spot to God, how shall he not purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, this message tonight is meant to draw our appreciation to this great Savior that we hold, that we have. And I want you again to think about your place, not just in time, but your place of belonging in eternity. In eternity. And I want you to see, again, just this last note here in Hebrews 9. Not only does he save you, but he calls you to a fellowship with him, and there's something beyond that. He gives you, he gives me, this place of service to this living God who loved and died for us. In other words, he, too often we think of our salvation as a religion. We think of this communion time as something to observe. This is all about living in a constant place of fellowship and relationship with our Savior. God has saved us not only to walk with him in fellowship, but to serve him. And I think there's the old hymn that says something like this, how can I do less than give him my best? And I think the phrase goes on to say, after all he's done for me, something like that. So tonight, there is another rising tide of, of something that should be a part of everyone here. That emotion that should be at the, at the door of the heart or bubbling up from within the heart should be that emotion of gratitude. So tonight, if nothing else happens in this evening by the songs being played and the elements being passed out and you sit there and you wonder, how do I go through this time? Offering praise to God in gratitude would be a, an appropriate way of remembering this time, of remembering him. Giving thanks and giving thanks and giving thanks for all that he's done for you. So tonight, don't let this just be a moment in time. Let it be about your fellowship. Let it be about your relationship with him. And know this, whatever we do in this context of our relationship with him, truly, in eternity, it only gets better. Can you imagine with me for a moment? Our time is done in the passage, but can you imagine for a moment when our faith becomes sight? And then you begin to think of songs like, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. All this brings everything going on in the world into context for us tonight. No matter what's going on in the world, praise the Lord, we have Jesus.